WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In national news today, Facebook ran into more controversy today amid reports of legal action and concerns about the disclosure of information to investors, according to the BBC. As Facebook shares fell another 9%, regulators said they may review disclosure. An investor filed a writ against the Nasdaq stock exchange. Technical problems at Nasdaq on Friday disrupted Facebook's first trading day. Facebook shares launched at $38 each on Friday, fell 11% on Monday, and a further 9% today. The shares are now worth $31 each. In Michigan news, the Michigan Energy Michigan Jobs Coalition wants to increase the state's renewable energy standard to 25% by 2025, according to Michigan Radio. That would mean that a quarter of all energy used in Michigan would come from renewable resources like wind and sun. The coalition is trying to collect enough signatures to put the issue before voters on November. They'll need to collect a minimum of 322,000 valid signatures by July 9th. Organizers say their goal is to turn in 500,000 signatures. On the show today, production director of the Cirque du Soleil show, Kidan, will be uh, on the phone. That that show is performing at the Breslin this week. Um, also on the show, we'll talk about the new goal to prevent and treat Alzheimer's disease by 2025. Also on the show, Rocky Vodolato, um, a singer-songwriter from Seattle, joined us in studio on Friday, so I'll air the interview as well as performances. But now, on the phone, um, Eric Qualman is an MSU grad and author of the best-selling book, Social Nomics. He's on the phone today to talk about how the media transform uh, transforms how we live and do business. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me on, Emily. So first off, how would you describe your book, Social Nomics? It's really discussing why social media is changing the way we live um, and also do business. And as whether you're a small business or a big business, it'll actually give you practical tips on, on how to how to use it to actually sell more stuff. In um, as I just said in the news today, how Facebook stocks you know went went on the market last week and they're not doing so well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean it's interesting to watch that play out. Obviously, it's a it's gonna. It's a. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So we'll see what happens over the next coming days. But um, I'm not too shocked because we've seen the dot com bubble before. So investors are saying, you know, fool me once, don't fool me again. And I think maybe they came out originally. They're supposed to come out at twenty eight dollars or thirty four dollars a share, and then they bumped up to thirty four to thirty eight. So possibly Facebook and their underwriters, not to bore the heck out of the audience, but possibly they got a little too greedy mm-hmm. out of the gate, and so they're kind of suffering from it right now. You graduated from MSU. What did you study while you were here? I studied business. Well, I started in communications, and I switched over to business. Mm-hmm. In, in your book, Socialnomics, you know, talks about how um, the media transforms how we live and, and do business. So how has social media influenced your life or the business that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have to eat my own dog food, so to speak, because I'm out there using social media to sell books. So just- <laughs> essentially using YouTube and Twitter, and I've had a couple of videos go massively viral, but those don't sell any books. They might say that's an awesome video, but they don't know that I produced it or that I have a book behind it. And so it's really rolling up those sleeves and 
starting to listen for those conversations that are happening out there digitally. So if I see some of the passes along the video, they say, I love this video, and I'm listening for it on Twitter, on Facebook, I can then reply to them and say, hey, glad you liked the video. Have you read the book? And then all of a sudden they go, I didn't know there was a book. I just bought it on Amazon. I'll let you know. So now I've got a sale, and now I've got an engagement with that person. That's what I love about it. I can meet so many people globally. When I see someone in Sri Lanka that's reading my book, uh, it really blows me away. And, and, and social media, just using those two main tools, Twitter and, and YouTube, has been able to make the book go number one in seven different countries. Wow. What are some really cool ways that businesses or individuals can utilize social media in ways that most people don't know about at this moment in time? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, because you'll hear the basics, like listen, interact, react, and then sell. Don't try to sell right away, but you got to create those relationships. Uh, but there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. So if you think about, like, LinkedIn, if there's something that you're very passionate about, you should go out there and make sure you start a group on LinkedIn. Or if you're a student, obviously, you need to have your profile on LinkedIn. But there's little nuances that you can have a huge amount of success. So if you're passionate about a group, start it, whatever that might be. It might be you love white chocolate. You know, start a group on that white chocolate. There's other people out there that love white chocolate. On Facebook, they've got 2 million people that love white chocolate. But if you're an individual, let's say you're a college student, if you have your profile at 100% completion on LinkedIn, and LinkedIn will tell you whether you're at 100% completion, maybe you're at 90%, you need to add a photo or add a recommendation from one of your bosses. But if you have 100% completion, then you're going to get 40 times more job offers, inquiries, business opportunities if you already have a job. And so that's kind of the level. If you do those little things, all of a sudden they have a big, big reward. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see social media's role five years from now? We've seen it expand greatly in the past five years. So where do you see it five years from this today? Yeah, you know, I don't find it. It'll find its natural spot or role just like email did and search did before it. So it'll be a part of our everyday lives, and it'll also be a part of what we do for business because it actually touches every facet of the business because social media is less about technology and more about people living, breathing, human beings, and it's uh, your customer. And so five years from now, it'll have its proper place. Mobile's going to help it uh, stay there because it's obviously our consumption of social media increases the better the mobile tools are. And so what we'll start to see five years from now is it'll start to be used more for social good as well. So that means that it'll help create movements. Uh, We've already seen that across the board, whether it's in Colombia, whether it's in Egypt, uh, the Arab Spring, utilizing social media, it will see more and more of the social good piece. And then also it's going to be huge in education, just the amount of sharing that we can do. And one thing that most people aren't aware of, obviously I'm aware of it as an author, but when I was a student at Michigan State, I would walk into that bookstore, like a lot of us, SBS, have my fingers crossed before I purchased that used book, have them crossed and pray to God that, oh, my gosh, I hope that the, the person that had this book took good notes and was an A-plus student. <laughs> well, in the future with these e-readers, you'll be able to see all the notes from all the A-plus students, not only from Michigan State, but from across the globe that have, that have read that book. And so it's fascinating to me just how much smarter these generations are going to be because of the technology that available at their fingertips. Well, speaking of that, last week I interviewed the superintendent of Grand Ledge Public Schools, which is just about 20 
20 minutes or 15 miles or so away from uh, MSU here. And uh, next year, they're going to give an iPad to every single kindergartner in the district. So you're talking about this higher ed and, and how, uh, you know, media and um, technology can help there. Um, but what are your thoughts on kindergartners using these tools in the classroom? I think it's great. I think it shocks and scares people just because it's not something we're used to. But in this video that I released that did go viral, one of the things we said is that, you know, kindergartners are learning on, on iPads, not on chalkboards. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing my two-year-old daughter, just what she can do on an iPad is incredible. And just the amount of learning tools that are available to her on that iPad is just fascinating to me. And so that's one thing is that's the hardware that can help us advance education. But then there's also a lot of software that's already out there. If you look at Stanford and MIT and and uh, Princeton that are putting all their classware for free online. That means that across the globe, as long as you can get to an Internet connection, then you have the capability to learn from the best and brightest across the globe. And uh, that's really, really amazing stuff. Or if you look at KhanAcademy.org, they have exploded out of nowhere in the last two years. Now they're completely funded by the Bill Gates Foundation, and they're flipping the classroom, meaning that, when, when, when I went to school in high school, your homework would be, okay, here's the lecture in class, and then you go home and do the homework. Now it's changing that model. So it's you go home and watch KhanAcademy.org because that person is much better at teaching you about math than I can, and the technology they're using makes it simpler for you to digest. And then when you come into class, we'll have more one-on-one time because you're going to do your homework in class. And you can learn from your peers, and you can also learn from the instructor that's walking around while you're actively doing your homework. So it's changing the model of the classroom. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, last week I listened to a really interesting article about Facebook ads and how, and I and I've looked into it before how Facebook uh, can take your information and then tailor their ads to your interests, and and sometimes that that scares people because they're like, well, how, what do they know about me? Are they selling my information to advertisers, and what do they know about me, about me as an individual? Um, so I'm curious, are there any issues with privacy settings when it comes to tailoring ads to um, individual Facebook users, and how effective do you think those ads are? Uh, first off, the information they have is the information that you've given them. You've willingly given them this information. Now, you might not have known that they're going to eventually use it for advertising, but there's no such thing as free lunch. So there's a reason why it was free for you to use. Now, that being said, you can go in and set your privacy settings and remove some of your personal information if you don't want those ads tailored to you. Uh, but the philosophy is, is that those ads should be relevant to you, so there actually should be a value add to, to you. But, again, this is all volunteer on your behalf, and if you want to do that, you want to, whatever information you put up there, that's up to you. Now, that being said, is obviously Facebook needs to be a little more, more open in what they disclose. They've had some learning pains on really understanding that and figuring that out on the privacy issue side of things. And, and that might eventually be their downfall. If you don't trust them, then, then they'll never succeed. So they understand how important that is. Now, on the effectiveness of the ads, um, it all depends on what you're trying to sell. I've seen a lot of people have tremendous success. I've also seen companies that have amazing success for the first couple of weeks, and then it t- tapers off. And then you've also seen like a company like General Motors that pull completely out of it because it's not getting what they want or what their goal is. So some of it depends on what your goal is, um, and some of it depends on what you're selling. But it's not going to work for everybody. It works for some. But that being said, in short, 
is that if Facebook doesn't come up with a new business model, they're never going to reach that valuation that they had as they came out as a publicly traded stock. They need to change their business model to be either focus on social search, not to get in the weeds here, but focus on social search or focus on uh, small business commerce. And so they need to change their business model if they want to even come close to, to reaching the goals that they set when they came out as an IPO. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, I'm talking to Eric Coleman. He's an MSC grad and, and um, author of the best-selling book, Socialnomics. You recently came out with a new book called Digital Leader. Can you tell me about that book and how it may compare and contrast to Socialnomics? Yeah, I mean, when I was traveling the world and, and doing book signings and speaking is that I kept getting three questions at me, whether it was from a prime minister, whether it was from a soccer mom, or whether it was from a small business owner. is really it was all this stuff is too much for me to handle. You know, I could barely handle my email, and now I've got all this stuff coming at me from Facebook, from Twitter, from YouTube. How do I, how do I handle it? But most importantly, how do I lead my best life? And then how do I lead others? And then how do I leave a legacy that matters? So it's really those three main constructs. Is how do I leave my best life, lead others, and then leave a legacy, a digital legacy uh, that matters? And so that's what the whole book's tailored around is um, if Dale Carnegie – who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. we're going to write a book today. What's kind of the 80% that's still the same, and what's the 20% that's different for you to be a leader? Um, and all of us are leaders, right? We're all leaders of our lives, and so we're all leaders at different capacities. And the difference is today is that now we all leave these digital legacies that last forever and ever mm-hmm. and ever. And so we all, all want to know what's going to be on our gravestone or what's being said at our, at our funeral and now we can see that real time. And it's comprised of two things. It's comprised of your digital footprint. That's anything that you upload about yourself. So that might be a fat Facebook status update, a tweet. It might be something you post on a blog. But more importantly, it's your digital shadow. And that's what other people post about you. And so really these footprints and shadows, they make your digital legacy. So if you want to know what people are going to say about you, a simple thing is to just Google yourself, and you'll find out what's being said about you real time. Is that the life that you want to leave, and that's the mark on the world that you want to leave. And so the whole book's about giving you five simple constructs to leave your best life stamp. So if, if people were to take one thing away from your book, Socialnomics, as well as Digital Leader, what would, what would that um, words of wisdom be? The words of wisdom would be fail forward, fail fast, and fail better. You know, you're not going to get it right the first time. The only way you can learn in the digital space is to fail and to, to increase your rate of learning. We need to increase our rate of failure, and that's counterintuitive for centuries and centuries, but that's the world that we live in. It's a hyper-connected world. It's a hyper-competitive world, and so you need to go out there, take action, learn from any failures that you have, and move forward and fail forward. I'm on the phone is Eric Qualman. He's an MSU grad and author of the best-selling book, Social Nomics, and he was on the phone today to talk about how the media has transformed how we live and do business. Eric Qualman, thanks so much for talking to us tonight. Thank you, and go green. All right, bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more
more variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Cirque du Soleil is a dramatic mix of circus arts and street entertainment. The show Kidam will be at the Breslin Center May 23rd to the 27th. On the phone to talk about the show is Kidam production manager, Chris Brislin. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Emily. So how would you describe this performance that's going to come here to MSU this week? Well, as cliche as it sounds, it's almost undescribable. If you were to go see it and try to describe it to your friends, uh, the only thing you could really say is, I can't believe they put that much into such a small building. Wow. Okay. And how? And I, I, I know there's tons of different Cirque du Soleil shows. How many shows does Cirque du Soleil actually have outperforming right now? And how does this? How does Kidam compare to to the others? Well, we actually have 22 wonderful shows that are uh, worldwide. Uh, and Kidam is actually one of the originals. It was one of the first shows that the company created. Uh, it's been uh, performing for more than 12 years, uh, and it's and it's timeless. So uh, seeing it is seeing the original concept uh, of our company. Uh, so it was one of their first shows, and it's so different from the oh every show is different from one another but this one has a has a very central story theme it has a wonderful story arc that uh it's loose enough where everybody takes away something different from it but everyone follows a story and they make a connection to the young girl who stars in our show and we sort of get lost in her imagination and then from there no one does imagination like uh, Cirque du Soleil what does your role as production manager entail for this show? Well, it's a pretty easy job. Uh, I'm responsible for all technical aspects of the show, all 16 trucks that move all of our equipment, uh, the 120 local technicians we need to build the show, uh, and all of the rigging, sound, lighting, automation, carpentry uh, that comes with the show. How much does an average Cirque du Soleil show, <laughs> that's a mouthful, Cirque du Soleil show cost to actually put on? Well, actually, it's uh, they're almost priceless. Uh, and when I say that, uh, our show, our, all of our shows are artistically driven, not financially driven. Uh, a group of genius artists sit in a room and, and they conceive a show, and it takes about takes about two years from the first time someone has a thought of a show to when the show can actually rehearse. And the reason that is is all of it is in the artist's mind. It, it's it's an amazing creative process. And then it's our jobs as technicians to make this come to life. 
uh, our particular show uh, needed the entire cast to be able to turn on the stage. And what became of that is actually the world's largest turnstable is right here in East Lansing mm-hmm. uh, for Kidam. But it takes a while to develop, and you, know, you can't buy the world's largest turntable off a shelf. You have to design it and test it, and then you have to build it. So all of the search shows uh, have amazing statistics. All of our shows have something that's the biggest in the world. If you go to Vegas, uh, any one of those shows are breaking world records, and Kidam is no different. And our particular stage and set took, took about two years uh, from design to actually being built and then they were able to rehearse. So to put a cost on that is is almost impossible. But it is in the in any show is 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 well over a hundred million. Wow! What are the background of a lot of the performers that are in the show? Well, every artist, uh, much like the technicians, uh, come from all around the world. My technical crew of twenty five are actually from thirteen different countries. Wow! Our entire cast is from twenty three different countries. And then, of course, our support staff is from all over the world as well. We tour with our own caterers, our own accountants, someone to help with all the visas. Uh, we have an amazing support staff as well. So everybody is literally from uh, every <laughs> all over the globe, and they, they weren't brought in for any other reason than they are the best at what they do. What is the history and inspiration behind Cirque du Soleil? How long has it been around? And, and tell me a little bit about the people who, who created it in the first place. Well, Cirque du Soleil is certainly a rags-to-riches story. It's, it's absolutely amazing how it started. Uh, when, you, when you described it as street performance, you were actually 100% correct. Cirque du Soleil started off on a street corner. Uh, our founder, Guy, was, was a street performer and loved to perform for people and met other street performers, and, and pretty soon a crowd started to gather around, and they went, you know what, we're not too bad at this. Let's, uh, let's, 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 let's do a full show. And they did a tiny show, and uh, it just exploded. Everyone wanted to come see it. They were the talk of the town because they brought something new to circus. When we, when we close our eyes and imagine the circus, we all get a feeling. But we necessarily don't like animals in shows. We certainly don't like the smell of animals in shows. And, <laughs> and the traditional circus just isn't the, the kind of evening you dress up for. Uh, circus Olay reinvented the way you see circus. Uh, of course, we have no animals in our show. Our performers are literally the animals. Um, and it's, it's, it's a surreal experience. It, it combines modern dance. It, it has a little bit of mime, but not too much mime, because too much mime can be annoying. Uh, they reinvented the clown. We have no scary clowns in our shows. We're actually very good clown therapy, if anyone does fear clouds. Um, the company just reinvented the circus from top to bottom. And the only difference with our circus uh, is our particular show used to be in a big top tent, uh, but we uh, lost the tent. We didn't lose anything else. We still have the same uh, amazing acrobats and performers. We have a live band. We brought all of the amazing set pieces and lights and sound that Cirque du Soleil is known for. But we got rid of the tent so we could actually come to towns like East Lansing, uh, where a tent show just would be a bit too much uh, for the population size. So we've brought everything except the tents, and uh, and we're in the wonderful Brisbane Event Center, which was a little small for us, and it took uh, a lot of creative drawing and planning to fit the entire show in there. Uh, 
uh, but it's it's uh, quite a success. Well, I've seen a few of the Cirque du Soleil shows, and they're always so amazing. The music is wonderful. The costumes are beautiful. And what people can do with their bodies, the acrobat part of it, is amazing. <laughs> People's jaws are always dropping. And then there's, you know, the artistic part of it. There's acting, you know, especially, you know, body language on stage with the with the uh, uh, clowns and stuff. So I've always enjoyed it. So, um Again, uh, on the phone is Chris Brislin. He is uh, the uh, the production manager for the show Kidam. It is a Cirque du Soleil show that will be at the Breslin Center May 23rd to the 27th. So, Chris, thanks so much for calling in and telling us about Kidam. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. We've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last week, the National Institutes of Health set a goal to prevent and treat Alzheimer's disease by 2050. On the phone is MSU professor and Alzheimer's disease researcher Nick Kanan. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? So what do you think of this goal to cure Alzheimer's by 2050? Do you think it's realistic? Uh, oh, that's a tough question to start. Yeah, so I, I think that's a a good estimate. I mean, it's it's optimistic. I mean, you know, really, um, the the answer to that comes down to really understanding the cause of the disease before we can really prevent it from happening. And while that seems really unclear right now, uh, the good side of that is that you know we could have a breakthrough tomorrow that could lead to you know an effective treatment or a cure. Tell me about the research you've done with Alzheimer's. Well, uh, so just to give you a little bit of background, if you look in the brain of an Alzheimer's patient, there are two proteins that accumulate in their brains. The first one is amyloid beta, which makes up these things people call plaques, and then the other one is tau protein, which makes up tangles. And so we focus on tau and trying to understand how tau can cause neuron dysfunction and death that leads to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. All right. Because um, I, I, I was finding out that they're going to conduct two different studies with um, they're going to get uh, $80 million in, in, in funding to do more research regarding That's Alzheimer's. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is um, one they're going to do kind of a preventative uh, measure where they're where they're looking at families, where, where it runs in the family, and trying to figure out, you know, how to prevent it. But then there's also, they're going to do a nasal spray. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, uh, I'm trying to find my, where my notes are here that, that talks about it, but um, it's it's a nasal spray and, a, and an insulin uh, nasal spray. Mm-hmm. How Why are they looking at insulin nasal spray to see if that can prevent Alzheimer's? 
Well, there's some uh, research evidence that suggests that there's a, a reduction in insulin in Alzheimer's brains, and insulin signaling is, is extremely important for proper brain function. So the relatively simple idea there is to replace the reduced insulin that's that's lost um, in Alzheimer's patients. Mm, okay. And there was there was a, a small clinical trial that was the preamble to, to what they're going to continue to fund here that showed that um, there were some promising um, effects in delaying some of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, and then again, they're going to also do a preventative study looking at families who have inherited caused dementia, which I guess is, is not as common. Um, That's right. And what is inherited caused dementia? Well, there, there's numerous uh, familial or inherited forms of dementia, in, including Alzheimer's disease. So as, as you may know, Alzheimer's disease is a form of dementia. It's the most common form. And there are other subtypes of, or other types of dementia that also have a, a, an inherited component. And so what those typically involve are mutations in certain proteins um, or genetic risk factors. So if you have a certain combination of a genetic makeup, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease goes up significantly. And so it's, it's looking at those type of genetic links that underlie the disease. But as you point out, that is a really small population compared to the um, more general population of Alzheimer's patients, which is you know designated usually as sporadic Alzheimer's disease, which essentially means we don't really understand why people have the disease. And do we have any current theories on the cause of dementia? Uh, well... I think there's there's a lot of theories, well. <laughs> um, and you know I think that I think that fits especially with Alzheimer's disease. It's it's categorized as an age-related neurodegenerative disease, and so the, this disease really takes a lifetime to to occur. And uh, with that, I think it implies that there's probably numerous factors at play here, and that may be different for different people. And so there's this kind of movement in the field to start talking about personalized medicine and that some combination of therapies or some specific therapies might work for some people but not for others due to their, um, you know, I guess, uh, their montage of, of various factors that, that precipitated Alzheimer's disease or dementia in that particular person. Mm-hmm. Currently, there there are five million Americans that have Alzheimer's or dementia, and that number mm-hmm. is supposed to rise to sixteen million by twenty fifty. That seems like a huge increase. Why will that number rise so much? Uh, the biggest the, the biggest factor there is the baby boomer population, and it's you know as time's going on, we're getting more and more people that start to get into that aged category, um, where the risk for Alzheimer's disease um, increases quite dramatically, you know, as I, I said just a second ago, it, it is an age-related neurodegenerative disease, so aging is one of the primary risk factors for developing Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And again, as I said, uh, $80 million is going into this Alzheimer's research. How does that number compare to research about other types of diseases that is going on right now? Oh, well, that that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if I can give you any specifics, but the one thing I can say is that it, it, the people in the Alzheimer's field are extremely excited about this because um, over the um, recent years, funding through the National Institute on Aging, which is the National Institute of Health agency that primarily funds Alzheimer's research uh, projects, has been very difficult. So this will be a nice uh, boost that will get a lot of people going and hopefully uh, move us in the right direction. 
Mm-hmm. And why did you decide? Did, why did you want to get into Alzheimer's research? Oh. <laughs> um, you know, it was just I've always been interested in neurodegenerative diseases in general. It was really in my undergrad. I went. I actually went to Central Michigan University. Um, and worked with a professor there and uh, got interested in um, aging and Huntington's disease, which is another age-related neurodegenerative disease. And then I went on to do my Ph.D., uh, where I focused on aging and Parkinson's disease, another uh, similar type of disease, um, and then just uh, transitioned into Alzheimer's disease. It's, they're, they're just intriguing to me. They're significant uh, health and economic problems that I think uh, deserve a lot of attention. So it's just uh, always intrigued me. Mm-hmm. Well, on the phone is uh, MSU professor and Alzheimer's disease researcher Nick Kanan, uh, and he was here to talk about last week's uh, announcement that the National Institute of Health will set a goal to prevent and treat Alzheimer's disease by 2050. So, Nick Kanan, thank you so much for calling in tonight. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Now, Rocky Votolano joined us at the Impact in the studios last Friday before his show at Max Bar. Up next is a mixture of live in-studio performance he did as well as a conversation I had with him in the studios here at Impact 89FM. You're tuned to Impact 89FM. I'm Emily Fox. Rocky Botolato is an indie folk musician from Seattle. He's been strong in the music scene for the past decade. His latest album, Television of Saints, was released in April. Welcome to the show, Rocky Botolato. Thank you so much for having me. So you're only playing one show in Michigan, and I was surprised mm-hmm. it's in Lansing, and I was surprised it's at Max Bar. <laughs> Why Lansing instead of Detroit or Ann Arbor or Grand Rapids? You know, I've played in those other cities too, but um, I think I just have always really loved Lansing, and uh, I have some friends here in town from a band called Small Brown Bike that I toured with back in the day when I was in punk bands and stuff like that, so... Uh, I think that's that's part of what keeps drawing me back to Lansing and and just uh, you know my connection with my fans here. So I find that interesting that you were an, a punk rocker and now you're this really chill <laughs> folk <laughs> artist. Where did that transition come from? And I guess how has your music evolved? You know, I I guess I moved up to Seattle from Texas when I was in high school, and I think that um, I really you know held on to those. Uh, more folk influences and and kind of even some country a little bit in there, but really like singer songwriter type stuff from when I was growing up. And then, but when I moved to Seattle in like the early '90s, it was like all about the punk and indie scene for me. So, and that's kind of where I really got my start. And and uh, it wasn't until a little bit later that the the uh, earlier influences started to come out in my music. Michigan folk artist Jeff Bianchi is opening up for you tonight, and he performed with you at the Matt Pompier show at the Crowfoot in the fall. Mm-hmm. How did you get in touch with Jeff Bianchi, and how do you like performing shows with him? He's great. He's just such a cool guy and, like, an inspiring young kid, you know. Um, I met him, I think, through um, the Fusions Presents guys who, who promote the shows for me, always in the Michigan area. And um, I just took to him right away. And so... Um, you know, I told them I would, I wanted to play as many shows with them as possible. And, and, uh, yeah, so I'm really happy to have him on the show tonight. Your new album is called Television of Saints. Where did that title come from? <laughs> it's, uh, well, it was, it was one of the, it was a title for one of the songs and I thought it looked cool in print. So <laughs> that's how it ended up as the album title. Um, but it actually originated from, um, from a, a, a saint in India who, um, 
used it to kind of describe how everything's connected. And he was talking about like television when it came out because he he was it, this was back in the 30s, you know, and television was a big deal for people then. They think if you'd never seen a television and people are showing up in your living room from and nobody understood the technology and how it was happening. So he talked about uh, radio waves and 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 how things are transmitted and that was kind of the original idea and I just really liked the expression. I understand that you're a reader as well as a fairly spiritual person. Um, and I understand that sometimes books can inspire your writing process. Yeah. Um, what have been some of the most influential books that you've read? You know, when I got into just sort of <clears throat> looking at things, from, um, just looking at life from a larger, wider perspective, there was a book called The Tao Te Ching that I read. It's um, – it was written 2,500 years ago in ancient China by a guy named Lao Tzu. And, you know, a lot of scholars agree that it was like the wisest book ever written. It's just this collection of 82 poems. And they don't really make any sense at first when you start reading them. But then like the deeper meaning and the wisdom uh, come out. And that that book was just like had a huge impact on my life and really um, just kind of opened up my eyes to a lot of different things. And I think that that led to um, – the writing process through true, true devotion, my last album. And then, um, so that's one book. There's another book called Siddhartha that I really love. It's by a guy named Herman Hess. It's a good book. I've read that. Yeah. I love these like travelogue books. Um, uh, I think I always mispronounce his name, but Paulio Colio or something like that. Uh, he wrote the alchemist. Oh yeah. 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 That's another one I really Mm -hmm. love. And, um, I don't know. I was also really into like Ralph Waldo Emerson and, Henry David Thoreau and the Transcendentalist Movement, which I think really picked up from the teachings in the East, you know, and and brought that philosophy into uh, the Western thinking here. It was the first, like, real American imagination that that hit with those Eastern ideas. And then I think that was picked up by, like, the Beat Generation, you know, Allen Ginsberg and and, um, Jack Kerouac. And I was super into that stuff when I was in college, so... I've always been a, a big reader um, and got my English literature degree from the University of Washington before I got into the music business. And and uh, so I think reading and, and all that has had a big impact on, on my writing. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. My guest is Rocky Votolato. He is a singer-songwriter from Seattle. His latest album, Television of Saints, was released in April, and he is here to perform for us. I'm just going to play the uh, first two songs from uh, Television of Saints. So this song's called Little Spring. Little spring, you know that when our world ends, next one will begin. We on eyes again, little spring. Think you always held the key I jumped the fence, I had to steal it the holy house, I cleaned the floor you Left a note spelled out forever You gave me a girl, I gave you a boy Yeah, we were faster than Camaro Side by side on down the highway I loosened up my tourniquet and raced my blood up to the crest. 
this this album television of saints through kickstarter that surprised me considering that you're already an established artist why did you want to produce your own album i don't know probably a control freak (laughs) (laughs) how does it compare to to what you've done in the past um well i think that i i really did have a lot more creative control this way and that was appealing to me um, the process was a lot different. I was more involved with the from the engineering side. I mean, obviously the writing, which I've always done, but I did a lot more of the the recording and, and producing this time. Um, you know, I basically produced the album all on my own, and then I had somebody come in, one of my longtime uh, co-producing friends, Casey Faubert, at the end of the process once everything was tracked and and uh, I had a real clear vision for what I wanted. And I think that's probably the biggest difference is just that I was able to really um, fully realize my own artistic vision and uh, keep that artistic integrity without any compromise. So I feel really accomplished about the record. I'm I'm happy with the way it sounds from an audio perspective um, and and the songwriting. You know, I mean, obviously there's always things you would change or maybe do a little differently, but but overall I'm incredibly satisfied with the with the final product what were some of the gifts that you gave your fans that contributed to your kickstarter you know there was all kinds of creative things we came up with like um i did cover songs for people so (laughs) they chose uh you know some of their favorite songs and i and and uh or a favorite song and asked me to cover it and i did exclusive home recordings for them um I did dinners with people who I'm actually meeting on this tour now. So they, they signed up for that and, and pledged at a certain level. And, uh, so they get to come to soundcheck and, you know, hang out backstage and go to dinner with me. And, and, um, I'm doing like private performances. Um, let's see what else Christmas cards (laughs) and obviously, you know, the album itself and, um, 
either in a digital format or like a uh, vinyl record or CD and, um, um, you know, exclusive T-shirts and th- those kind of things. I understand that, that this alongside your 2006 album, Makers, is your favorite album you've done. Why is that? You know, I feel like that album is equally uh, as important to me as this one, as Television of Saints. Like, I feel like now I put them on an equal footing. Time will reveal to me, I think, if in you know, because this just came out, so... It asked me in like five years and, you know, I might say Television of Saints is my favorite record. But right now I'm actually thinking that they're they're, – I just feel like I was able to, back to the other point, just really realize that vision I wanted to create. And that's – I guess that's the the litmus test for me in terms of whether I hit the mark or not. I made seven albums. You know, I don't think everything I write is gold or that is – you know, a lot of times it's just experimentation and you don't know if you're going to get – what you're aiming for. But um, with Makers, I feel like I did both from an audio perspective and a, and a, a writing perspective. And, um, you know, same thing with Television of Saints. What is the inspiration for a lot of the songs on this album, Television of Saints? It's a lot about, um, you know, my music's always autobiographical and I, I want it to reflect what's happening with me in my life. But there's there's always little fiction elements as well. Um I think, you know, a lot of the stories are are real from my life, um, but I feel like this album overall is kind of, there's a few different themes running through it. There's, uh, you know, people struggling to uh, realize a dream or, you know, uh, find a better life for themselves. So kind of, you know, that working class vibe, Um, but then, which I think that runs through a lot of my music, but there's also like an element in this one that's, um, you know, more just like trying to see through the illusions of life to what's real. So, Rocky, you have one more song left for us. Yes, this song's called Ghost Rider, and like you said, it's off a uh, television of saints. Ghost Rider, put your pen to the piece of paper. Watch me what it up for an indoor snowball fight Worrying over the outcome of these illusions is like crying over nightmares Nothing's real in the morning Just let the pressure turn your charcoal heart You can look at behind the fog and watch and light up a list of mistakes. Stoplights, watch me memorize. Only real problem is thinking that we really exist. What a crushing disappointment! A dream of imposters posing. Just let the 
Like many great musicians, uh, you suffered through your share of depression, I understand. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've been told that artists who go through bouts of depression feel the most creative when they're at their lowest points because they're so tapped into their mind. Do you think that your songwriting was stronger when you were at your low points or was songwriting a way to get out of that state of mind? I think both those things are probably true. I, I think, you know, introspection is one of the positive side effects of existential suffering. <laughs> and I think introspection is important and good for people. And so, um, you know, uh, mental illness, which I think that's really what depression is, you know, it, it's, it's basically just not understanding what life is really about looking, uh, looking at things from an incorrect perspective. Um, so that's, that's, when I was at my lowest point, you know, I was really depressed and just didn't see the point in a lot of things. And in a lot of ways, I think that's true. What you said, like my music was therapy for me to be able to kind of sort things out. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So I hope there's some value in that, you know, um, in terms of you know, when other people can feel connected to that and like, they're not, they're not alone in feeling that way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that has fueled a lot of the, the writing process. Television of Saints is a little different. It's a, it seems like it's pulling from a different place almost. I mean, there's that in it as well, but, but I feel like there's uh, just more perspective. You are currently on a six-month tour, and then right after it, you're going to go to Europe for another six months. Uh, actually, well, it was, it was six weeks in Europe six before weeks, it. Six weeks, yes. Man, mm -hmm. six months, I'd be Oh, yeah, sorry, it. <laughs> I wrote that down, yes. Six, no, that's okay. Six weeks in Europe, six weeks here, and I understand that you had to postpone one of your European tours this year because you were just kind of burnt out from everything. Yeah, a little bit too much touring, and I was also working on the album. Mm -hmm. And I went through some real struggles with the record to, to get it finished. I, I recorded it twice. So the first time I went into a studio and I was all on the schedule for all the touring and the release date and all this and was negotiating a contract with Barsook. And this was before the whole Kickstarter idea was born. And uh, the album was supposed to actually come out last fall. 
and I was going to do a European tour then. So, um, but I, I just wasn't happy with it creatively. I wasn't satisfied with the album after I had, you know, spent a bunch of money and gone into a big studio in Seattle and hired a producer and, and all this. And so I just dug my heels in and it was really hard to make those decisions, but I, I decided to re-record the entire album and cancel a European tour and, and it was it was really challenging. Everybody thought I was completely crazy. <laughs> my management, my family, my friends, everybody was trying to talk me out of it. But now I'm really, really happy I had the courage to do that because the album is permanent, you know, and that's and I didn't wanna I've done it too many times in the past. I've compromised on the art and to try to keep up with a business schedule. And I just didn't do that this time. I just said, you know what, I don't care. A year from now I wanna be looking back and see the album that I wanted to make. So kind of let my life fall apart around me and it did <laughs> but um but you know it all uh fell into place and i think it all happened the way it should have and now i've got the album i love i understand sometimes when when things may get crazy on the road and there's a lot going on uh sometimes you meditate to cope with some with some things is that something that a lot of musicians do on the road I don't think so. <laughs> and how does it help you? I, I haven't talked to very many people who who um, who use it the way that I have for touring. Actually, I know my one my friend Yuki who plays in the Shins. Um, he he plays bass for them. He uh, he meditates as well. And so um, for me, it just really kind of chills me out and just like you know lets me let go of all the stress and anxiety. Because a lot of times, I think music in general, the music business is a really ego-affirming thing for a lot of people. And my goals in life are different than that now. I mean, it's like all about ego transcendence and not like, you know, it, like figuring out the, the problems and issues and like growing through them and stuff. And so I'm trying to get my lessons. I feel like meditation just helps me to do that. What inspires you to write? Hmm. I think just... Movies, books, um, my my experiences from my life, um, the standard stuff, you know, just, just whatever inspires me on a daily basis. I keep this notepad in my pocket and a pen, and anytime I see something that really moves me, you know, or makes me think about something more deeply, I just jot it down, and, and then those scraps of paper all turn into songs somehow. <laughs> Well, I should let our listeners know you just busted out this little notebook, a spiral, <laughs> mini spiral bound notebook from his back pocket. I, I read somewhere that you, you take ideas and put them on little sheets and then you kind of organize them. Yeah, because it seems like they're just all scattered when, they, when when inspiration comes. And usually, you know, it only takes one real spark to turn into an entire song. Mm-hmm. Well, in the studio is Rocky Votolato. He is an indie folk musician from Seattle. And uh, his latest album, Television of Saints, was released in April. And Rocky Votolato, thank you so much for joining us. Thank tonight. you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First. 
Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have? Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to <laughs> to see you because I <coughs> thought maybe we could. Uh, would you ever wanna? Um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No. Don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Freak. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. This is Keith Taylor for the Michigan Storytellers segment. I'm going to read you a poem today. It's a little poem from my own childhood. I grew up in a very conservative religious background, um, and it was also rural. So I heard often, many times a week sometimes, about this uh, wonderful thing called the rapture when all the good people would rise into the air and all the bad people would be left below. And of course, like many country children, I often found myself alone. So I was always convinced that it had happened because I was so bad. Everybody, had, all the good people had gone to be with God and I was left alone. So the poem is called Guilty at the Rapture. All things good would rise into air, pulled from dirt and sky, from cars left driverless below slamming into trees. That would be my first clue. On my ride home from the river, burning on my gold schwinn and sucking hard on a mint to smother the newspaper cigarette I'd just smoked in a stand of scrub willow, I would have to dodge machines abandoned by vanished Christians, glorified while driving back from work after centuries of trial. I would know a final loneliness before I screamed through the back door and found supper smoldering over gas. My parents gone, even my sister, only a hair less guilty, called to her celestial chorus. I would be alone in a world of smokers, crooks, murderers, of moviegoers, gamblers, and sex fiends. Left at last, alone in a world without one hope of grace. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Keith Taylor. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 